on WBT. Your guest host, Chad Adams, sitting in at the most uh, bizarre week of the year. Kind of between, stacked between two holiday the bookends of the week that a lot of people just take off and a lot of people work. But is the work really that productive this week? Is it really? It might be. Maybe it is. I, I'm trying to be. It's my attempt to be productive, at least. I'd love to have you with us here at News Talk 1110-993. You want to get in on the conversation, 704-570-1110. 570-1110. Chris, Bernie, the whole crew making it happen here. And I'll tell you what, if you're if you're flying in and out of Charlotte, odds are you're not with Southwest Airlines. And you've got to be thankful for that, right? I mean, I know there's some Southwest flights. That, but, I mean, this is an absolute nightmare story. I'm reading the one from David Koenig at the AP, and it, it seems to be one of the more objective pieces out there that devoid of people screaming and yelling, except for the victims of all this. South families hoping to catch a Southwest Airlines flight after days of cancellations, missing luggage, and missed family connections suffer through another wave of scrubbed flights with another 2,500 pulled from arrival and departure boards Wednesday. According to Flight Aware Tracking Service, more than 91% of all canceled flight in the U.S. early Wednesday were from Southwest, which has been unable to recover from ferocious winter storms that raked large swaths of the country over the weekend. The operational systems of Southwest have been uniquely affected, so much so that the federal government is now investigating what happened. Because that'll make it all better, won't it? Pete Buttigieg is on the scene. He's going to be on top of things. You feel safe. You feel like it's going to happen because Pete's on the case. Mayor Pete jumping in to figure out, you know, the guy's never fixed more than a pothole, but now he's the expert on the transportation grid. Southwest has is, is got uniquely hammered because two of their hubs are in Denver and Chicago, which got kicked. So in addition to that and the trouble they've got, they've got that going on. Then they've got a pilot shortage going on when they've been hit with a lot of uh, illnesses. You got to wonder if they are true illnesses. And they upgraded their systems. Don't do a system upgrade in the middle of a winter storm. <laughs> it's just not a good idea. But who would have thought a winter storm would have hit? Because the global warming people said such things won't. It's going to be warmer. You'll be able to grow crops in December, right? It's a mess out there. And if you, uh, you know, we had some relatives that are going back to Italy this week, and you know they're worried about making a connection in London because of a of a strike there for five or six days. It's supposed to end tomorrow. I mean, I love it when the, the, the British are so proper about this, right? They have a they have a transportation strike. It's only for four days, four, four or five days. It ends on the thirtieth, so the strike is ending before the outcome achieved or desired outcome has been achieved. But they don't want to inconvenience the British. We don't want to inconvenience too many people. We just want to make our point. But meanwhile, if you're if you're a Southwest ticket holder, it's, this is an absolute disaster. Nearly ten thousand this week, with cancellations from other major airlines ranging from none to two percent. Southwest had canceled over two ten thousand, nearly ten thousand flights as of Wednesday, and warned of thousands more Thursday and Friday. In a video that Southwest posted late last night, CEO Robert Jordan said Southwest would operate a reduced schedule for several days, but hoped to be back on track before next week. He blamed the winter storm for snarling the airline's highly complex network. He said Southwest tools for recovering from disruptions work 99% of the time, but clearly we need to double that. Can you imagine? So this is a 99% success rate that's going forward there. We have some real work to do in making this right, said Jordan, a 34-year Southwest veteran who became CEO in February. For now, I want you to know that we are committed to that. <laughs> Oh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who has criticized airlines for previous disruptions, 
said his agency would examine the causes. And, and, and again, they will do nothing. They didn't make the pilot shortage any better. They really haven't accomplished it. They say it just makes them feel good to say, hey, we're the government. We're here to help you. We're going. We're on it. We're going to do something about it. We're going to make it all better. I'm Mayor Pete, and I'm on scene. You feel better already, don't you? You feel better. You feel more comforted. You know that your baby's going to get on that flight soon because Mayor Pete's on it. It's a little bit obscene. It, it really is. I mean, the private sector failed. That's what happens. And when the private sector fails, you know what happens? People buy tickets with other airlines that are doing well. When competition doesn't work, I mean, excuse me, competition always works, and it drives people, and it makes things better. Prices come down. Services get better. You look at a company like Ryanair, which most people don't know about, but Ryanair is one of the most successful airlines out there. They don't fly into major major airports. They keep their fees low. They keep their planes booked. And you, if you're in Europe, you can travel cheap about everywhere using Ryanair. I mean, it's amazingly cheap. So... Now, you know, in Congress, and Congress has never seen a problem that it that it thinks it, it can't solve. Whenever it looks at anything, I'm convinced if Congress walked through your house, they would figure out a way to pass 10 laws that they think would make your house better. Everything They look at every problem in the country as something that needs their assistance to rectify and correct and make better. And, and it, it's often just the opposite. It's like progress is moving forwards, Congress is moving backwards. And so this they're going to look into it. Congress, the Senate Commerce Committee, also promised an investigation. Two Senate Democrats called on Southwest to provide significant compensation for stranded travelers. Why? I mean, that's a, that's a decision between Southwest, its legal arm, and the customers. They don't need Congress to tell them what to do. Congress doesn't know how to run an airline. They barely know how to run themselves. Imagine if Southwest ran its finances like Congress runs our finances. Southwest would be in like $5 trillion in debt. <laughs> the airlines would, ne- the airplanes would never fly. They'd fly. They'd probably have one wing on each airplane. So Congress being the ex, the resident expert on what is right. But, but it isn't that it with Democrats. The Democrats' answer to everything is somebody must pay. We're going to find someone. So let's, let's, let's bankrupt the industry because that will make it all better. They always think that every corporation is out to screw people over rather than and, – and Southwest will find. I mean, if they want to survive, they will find a way to make things right in some way with the customers. It's going to cost them millions and millions of dollars. Congress showing up late to the game to act like it wants to solve the problem? Isn't it, it kind of like you know you have a mud puddle in your front yard and Congress says, let me pour some water in there. We'll solve this. We're on the scene. It, they just don't. They, they're not problem. I mean, where have you ever seen Congress to be the noted problem solvers of today, of societal ills? I mean, if they, if, if they were to come in and solve your traffic congestion problems, they would just put red lights on every corner and no traffic would move. Problem solved. It's not the traffic. Great traffic problems. Nightmares. So, again, um, Southwest, if you're if you're holding Southwest tickets, you know, you've got it's got to be a, a, a very disconcerting world for you out there. But that's not where I wanted to go, because where I wanted to go was was one that uh, I, I don't you know, I, it, it, I here's one thing I've never understood. It, to me, it's always interesting. I remember reading Michael Crichton's State of Fear, still a great book about and Michael Crichton originally started out wanting to look at. What what was the worst man-made disaster that killed the most people? He went back and looked at you know the chemical spill in Bhopal. He looked at the uh, nuclear facility in Chernobyl. He looked at different things and found out you know the original reporting again back to the media. The original reporting on all of these 
were, were these stupendous numbers, these tens and tens of thousands of deaths and everything. And then over time, when you went back and looked at it, the number was significantly decreased. In fact, there's never been a man-made disaster that has equaled some of the most average natural ones. If you looked at, uh, you know, uh, Puckett, Thailand, when that when the, when the tsunami hit, that thing killed 280,000 people. We've got earthquakes and, and tsunamis and different events that killed tens and hundreds of thousands of people. So he was inspired to write the book under the guise because the, the political left is telling you that, that, that climate change is man-made and that it's going to kill hundreds of millions of people. It's going to displace billions of people. It's going to destroy the planet. We're doing it. Historically, we've never done that, but it's new. And so he, before his death, wrote a book which was about really the benefit of being an eco-terrorist and how pushing, making things happen that would look bad would benefit them. We see small pieces of this and people like Jesse Smollett and race baiters and everything who want to perpetuate this myth that we're an overly racist country when we're not. Are there always going to be bad actors? Yes. But there are also people that benefit from us being at each other's throats. And so when, when I look at the, the, the green energy stuff, and the green. So remember the difference between an environmentalist and a conservationist. They're, they're vastly different. An environment, a conservationist is someone who cares about the environment but carries a gun. All that is is environmentalist with a gun. Many on the right are conservationists. They want to make sure there are uh, things to hunt. They want to make sure that, that nature is protected, but they don't want to do it in an eco-terroristic way. So when you look at the policies, and to me, that they should be sexier. But they're not. For some reason, whenever you write about this stuff, and even on the radio, you can hear people turning off their radio when you talk about it. So I'm going to try not to. We'll try to talk about it in a different way, okay, in a way that's more direct and not just glowing. It's the end is near. Green, green, green. We need more green. <laughs> so funny that a lot of the green stuff isn't really green. You have to clear-cut tens of thousands of acres to put solar panels in. That's not very green. Sterilize it, basically make it uninhabitable by wildlife to generate power for you know, a much smaller number of people. These windmills that chop up endangered birds, that's okay. Neither of them work when the wind's not a blow under the sun's not a shining, but somehow that's we're supposed to uh, put our future into it. Not sexy, not exciting. Most people think of windmills as like Holland, and they're just pretty, and you can grind up corn with them. Just put some corn in there, and the windmill will turn and grind it into really cool stuff, and you can wear wooden shoes and count tulips all day long. No, Chad hasn't lost it. This is Chad Adams sitting in for Pete Callender. Pete would be much more respectable at this. That's the beauty of being a sub-host. I can just say these things. So when you look at this, though, you have to wonder, where is it? So where is it all going? So we had this epic winter storm, a, a what is it they call it? A, it's a cyclone, but it was a bomb cyclone now. You never heard such phrases when you were young, did you? You know, and when you were young, you didn't hear about reports about real bad tropical weather until it was a hurricane. Now it's a tropical depression. It's front page news. And now you have a, a bomb cyclone that, that just, it's a, you know, a big serious weather event. The issue is cold kills a lot more people than heat does. It just, it does. And so when you encumber your electrical grid or you can't keep track of that, people die. And you can blame the weather all you want to, but if your electrical grid is handicapped because you've got a bunch of feel-good policies in place, where's that going to leave you? So James Hanley has a piece over at the New York Post. Yes, that New York Post, the one that was that was it was suggested to be banned by the FBI and Twitter and the rest of the folks says, yes, we should stop the New York Post because they're printing truthful things. 
the FBI tried to sell them that wasn't so truthful. Turns out it was. Now, back to the article. New York will confront an increasingly serious energy supply problem of its own making within the next decade. So pay attention to that phrase. The phrase of its own making kind of stands out at you, doesn't it? Because it's it's the phrase that matters. A series of policy initiatives culminating in 2019's boring, boring Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act have committed the state to unrealistic goals that will increase electrical demand while making supply less reliable. Governor Cooper is doing similar things. Governor Cooper in this state is pushing for us to be, you know, kind of petroleum free in every way possible. He wants to have more electrical buses, more electrical cars. He wants windmills off the coast, more solar panels. He's doing everything he can to move that way. We have two two very successful nuclear plants. We should be building three or four more to make sure we have cheap, reliable energy for decades to come. But that's not the case because the Democrat left doesn't like nuclear. I don't know why. Nuclear is steam. I don't know why they don't want steam generators. We know how to do it. We know how to do it effectively. We know how to do it with minimal impact on the environment. We know how to make it cheap, abundant, reliable, which makes us competitive with the world. And we don't need to be buying Chinese solar panels that ultimately fill landfills. We don't have to do that. Among these policies are the state's plans to electrify transportation and space heating, a peaker plant rule that will shut down reliable fossil fuel generation and a de facto ban on natural gas pipelines. The overarching goal is to reduce the state's total greenhouse emissions by 85% over the next 30 years. Along the way, the state aims for 70% renewable by 2030. That's only six, uh, seven years away. And 100% uh, emissions-free by 2040. This despite the fact that New York has one of the country's cleanest energy profiles and greenhouse gas emissions from electric production have already dropped with the closure of the state's coal-fired plants. Ultimately, energy policy must balance three factors. This is where it gets boring, folks. Please don't turn off your radios. The, you want you want your energy to be reliable, you want it to be affordable, and you want low emissions. That's what we. I, I don't think there's anyone out there, Republican or Democrat, that doesn't want those three things. You don't want it to be, you know, sulfurous pollutants smelling like rotten eggs everywhere. You also want it to be affordable because you don't want a $5,000 a month energy bill and you want it to be reliable. So when the wind isn't blowing, the sun's not a shining, you can turn the lights on. Or more importantly, your heat. New York's air is to overemphasize low emissions, over affordability. North Carolina, many other states are doing the same. North Carolina is doing it as well. And the irony is when they say Duke Power is working with you, Duke Power is working with all of this. Duke Power's like, hey, we're going to make money no matter what. No matter what you do, we're going to make money at it because we're going to pass the cost along to the end user. We're going to get maybe subsidies from the government. We're going to be able to bill for everything. We're going to make a ton of cash. So we'll be glad to go in there with legislators. We'll be glad to go in there with the governor. We'll be glad to go in with all their people because we look good no matter what. You want us to have more nuclear plants? We'll build them. We're a monopoly energy company for the most part. I'll probably get a nasty letter about that, but for the most part, they are. And when you have a monopoly energy company, you don't have a lot of competition. You know what? You want more solar? Sure, we'll build it at 10 times the cost. So it doesn't matter. To meet its goal, the state of New York needs to add 20 gigawatts of renewable generation in the next eight years. And by 2040, only 18 years away, it needs to roughly triple that by adding 95 gigawatts. But in the past 20 years, they've only done 13. So they're nowhere close to where they need to be. So it's an absolute disaster for New York. It's what happens when you do this. New York and other states need to rethink these energy policies because it's absolutely a rudimentary nightmare for them. Not even rudimentary. It's basic. It's basic. It's basic economics. Look, the degree to which you can compete internationally is every 
major industry, manufacturing, every operation out there needs cheap, abundant, reliable energy. That's it. It needs to be cheap, abundant, reliable. We should be looking at that because every form of energy that we produce, our energy, the way we burn fuel, even fossil fuels now, is 20, 80 times cleaner than it was in the 60s and 70s and far cleaner than it was in the 20s and 30s. Even the coal-fired plants are cleaner and better than they were. We're becoming, because we evolve, we're not burning things the same way. We're not acting the same way. And that's the natural evolution of energy. That's the natural evolution. We're moving in cleaner ways. The government forcing it, in many ways, it's like cancer research. The government getting involved in cancer research through the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s actually held it back from monumental breakthroughs. And doing so the same way, getting government involved, getting government out of the way, Imagine if the government was out of the subsidy business for solar and electrical, the private sector money would have gone into all sorts of things, and we'd probably have fusion generators by now. But we don't. Government's holding back innovation, not prompting it. Much more to go here as we kick things through the halfway point here on the Pete Callender Show. I'm your guest host, Chad Adams. Give us a call at 570-1110-705. I'm sorry, 704-570-1110 here at WBT. We'll be back right after this. Uh, I love the uh, a few <laughs> funny DM. What the hell are you going to say next? <laughs> Got to keep you guys on your toes. You don't know. Chad Adams sitting in for Pete Callender. It's a pleasure and honor as always. I say that. Probably you guys probably get hired. There he goes again talking about how great WBT is. Well, they are. They're a wonderful group to work with. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Uh, our good friend Chris, uh, he'll take your phone calls if you call in. 704-570-1110-570-1110. 1110 News Talk 1110-993-WBT. And love to have you give us a call and tell us what's on your brain. Now, one of the things to look back is this year to me. There's a many. I mean, I could go on, I could go on for days about this. It probably will. <laughs> but this particular moment is the notion of the year of the woman. And there's several columns written about this. People are reflecting back and going, what the heck happened to women this year? As, as an aspect of humanity. On the, on the one hand, you know, uh, women have pushed for equal rights and, and equal pay and, and a number of other things, and at the same time have allowed themselves to be marginalized by, by not even having known what a definition of a woman is. That we were eradicating the definition of women, even in, in competitive sports. It's surprising that the liberal left has allowed women's sports to be dominated by a few bad players in, in a different movement with the sexual identity issues that that they think it's okay for people who have strong genetic advantages to competing with women, with women who are biological women. And they've tried to blur the lines of sexual distinction under the auspices of caring about people. They, they've, you know, they fought so much for equal treatment and we should equal rights for all special privileges for none that now they're being marginalized as not even a different aspect of humanity. It's like men, and then there's other. And it's just insane the way we've gone down that path. And, and women should be outraged. Moms should be outraged at this attempt to marginalize the impact uh, and, and what defines a woman. I mean, to fight for so long. And so there's a, there's a piece over at Unheard by Ayan Hirzi Ali, and, and it's a good piece. I, I mean, I, I don't know that I agree with all of it, but I, but I think it's worth having this discussion. And I think that's what's beautiful about going through your confirmation, confirmation bias and finding things you disagree with and saying, hey, what 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 do I not 
get? What am I, what is it I'm not getting? And often I've, I've tried for 30 years, well, actually more than that, about 40 years now. I've tried to understand how the, I know how they think, but it's still illogical and it's more about emotion than it is about fact. But let's go through this column. In 2022, if 2022 had been the year of the woman, it's a tale of two different final chapters, one hopeful, one less so. The first is set in a distant country where an archaic theocratic regime threatens to be toppled by women throwing down their hijabs and demanding their emancipation. The second plays out in a more familiar setting, but in an unfamiliar language, a Western nation where the word woman itself no longer has any meaning. Its definition rewritten to include, quote, an adult who lives and identifies as female, though they may have been said to have a different sex at birth, end quote. This is the paradox of the past 12 months. The existence of women is being questioned in the very place where female emancipation has come furthest. In other words, in the United States, the women's movement has moved further than any other place on the planet, while in places where women remain shackled to medieval notions of honor and chastity, true feminism is at its strongest. Now think about that that women in Iran are pushing the boundaries of freedom in a way that women in America are surrendering them. But back to the column. Why should we worry about dictionary definitions when everyone knows what a woman is anyway? I mean, we have a Supreme Court justice that couldn't define what a woman was in, in, in a hearing. This may seem like a fair question, yet simply dismissing the erasure of a word as a, quote, culture war issue misunderstands the forces that drive it. As Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay noted in their 2020 book, cynical theories language is now viewed as a tool of oppression and thus must be altered in the name of so-called liberation. These arguments over the word woman, then, have wider repercussions. They are fronts in a greater war that will determine how language itself is used. Now, I want you to think, let's go get away from the column for a second and think back to what we've been talking about today. We've talked about kind of the the this this benevolent dictator that that is in the white house now that that is saying and the left likes the concept of having we know what's best for you so do what we tell you to do we see this in the green energy policies which are very egregious if taken to their final final moment it restricts energy or makes it very expensive it's going to hurt the poor the most it's not a it's anathema to freedom all of these policies that the left pushes, when you take them down the road, they abandon freedom on every journey. Every one of the journeys on policy with respect to what the left wants is a journey away from freedom. I talked about this before, but this makes it kind of clear. Those who would divorce woman from its biological implications, back to the column, often present their ideas as in innocuous. They are, we are simply told, champions of inclusion, but the ideology is hardly uncontroversial, and surrendering it to it is not harmless. The past year has seen reports of transgender women attacking women in female-only spaces and unfairly winning trophies in women's sports. The spirit of these failures was perhaps best distilled in the words of Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson, who in March was unable, a sitting Supreme Court justice now, was unable to define what being a woman entailed during her Senate confirmation hearing. Quote, I'm not a biologist, she said as if one needed to be a professional scientist to know basic biology. A word of clarification, the author writes, I'm immensely sympathetic to the plight of transgender people and believe they ought to have the same moral and legal rights as everyone else. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Rights, yes. To be against militant trans activists' gender ideology is not to be transphobic. Rather, it is simply to agree. Shizmati Ngozi Adichie succinctly put it that trans women are trans women. 
They're trans women, period. They're not women. They're trans women. Adichie was savage for saying this in other statements, evincing wrong thing, but acknowledging that trans women are distinct from women, that there are potential conflicts between their rights, and that gender ideology opens the door to abusive men masquerading as women should not be controversial in any way. Standing up for the rights of transgender people should not mean pretending sex doesn't exist. Dave Chappelle, if you watch Dave Chappelle, he is not transphobic, homophobic in any way. He's very direct. But it's not. Any, any, anything to the contrary is just virtue signaling, and it's absolutely false. Back to the column. Indulging in this fantasy can have perverse and dangerous repercussions, both at home and abroad. Here in the West, it culminates in a myopic worldview, which holds that a best-selling author and domestic abuse survivor should be trolled for funding a women-only service for victims of sexual abuse. Elsewhere in the world, the erosion of our understanding of what it means to be a woman has more immediate consequences. Consider what's taken place in Kenya, Iran, Afghanistan in just the past two months. In Kenya, while women in America debated what we should call a person born with a cervix is, FGM has taken a new and insidious form. In Iran, the female-led protest that followed the death of Masha Amini, a 22-year-old Kurdish Iranian woman who was arrested for breaking dress code laws, have been met with an equally inhumane response. Reports about Iran's security services raping protesters and shooting at the faces and genitals of female protesters. Afghanistan, the Taliban government, reintroduced Sharia law, meaning women are now barred from walking outside without a male relative and must cover up with a burqa or hijab actually went outside the home. Earlier this month, a woman was publicly flogged for entering a shop without a male guardian. Last week, the Taliban banned women from studying at university. In other words, those countries have no trouble defining what a woman is. The women in this country are being pushed down and aside by the very group that claim to extol the virtues of equality. Is it really a coincidence that in the same year the West forgot what it means to be a woman, we decided it was acceptable to turn our backs on women in these countries. The above is what happens when a society stops caring what it means to be a woman, when a centuries-old fight for emancipation becomes relegated to semantics. It's just unfathomable. Why is gender ideology so messed up? Gender ideology advocates are a threat not just to women, but to all of our ideals in the West. Western culture prides itself on the achievements of the Enlightenment in science, in other words, on objectivity. It was on an objective basis that previous generations of feminists staked their claim. Their plight was backed on an appeal to reason. And now, it's just not that way. The effects of all this are slowly taking shape. In the 70s, the anti-Shah Iranians threw in their lot with the Ayatollahs in the delusional hope that the Ayatollahs would share power after the revolution. They learned very quickly that fanatics cannot be trusted or restrained. Similarly, many Western feminists ended up allying themselves with progressivism. And now far too many women have felt the terrible consequences of that alliance. In the spirit of true feminism is to be reclaimed, we need more J.K. Rowlings and fewer Katanji Brown Jacksons. It's not just feminism and the rights of women that are at stake here. So too are the best ideals of the West. If 2022... If 22 is the year of the woman, let's hope 23 will be the year that we can delete those quotation marks. Now, lest you think I went overboard there, the author is a black female who wrote this. Not my opinion, but theirs. So, just for fun, and I'm having a lot of fun, Chad Adams sitting in for Pete Callender here on WBT. Beautiful day. Gonna be even better tomorrow. And I'll be with you tomorrow. 
So you get to enjoy, you know, my bizarre view of the world. So just for fun, I went over to CNN's website because I, I do that from time to time. It's, you know, if you if you like smashing your toes into doors and things like that, go check them out. I mean, I do that regularly, not smashing of the toes, but checking them out because I, I'm often fascinated by what they don't cover. And, and because you want to see that they're absolutely a political operative. They're not interested in an overarching view of news. They like being told what to do by progressives. They like carrying that torch. They have a new CEO. Their ratings have plummeted. Their, their, their numbers are terrible, but they continue doing the same thing. So here are their headlines. Uh, they're, they're above the fold when this woman died in car just six minutes from home uh, in the blizzard. They've got a uh, woman saves frostbitten man after begging for help on Facebook. Southwest Airlines, please keep your receipts. Uh, an analysis, Southwest got billions from taxpayers. Why all this? So that's kind of prepping for Pete Buttigieg. Uh, United American cap prices, 90000 on the West Coast without power. Uh, again, the January 6th panel, that's big headline news for them. That's their second lead story is about January 6th. And zero COVID policy in China. How did it go wrong? Uh, that's it. Nothing, not one mention. Not one mention of the Twitter situation. Not one mention of, of any of the stories that we've talked about here today. Not one. Nothing about that. Not about energy problems. Not about uh, you know the inability to do the cost of energy. What it's doing. It's hurting the poor. You would think they would care about that. They do not. It's not a big thing. They do have one story here that I want to call to your attention because it bears it. it you. It's funny. It's not funny, haha. It's funny, like, how in the hell do they get away with this kind of stuff? So the news, it said uh, the Bidens make an island escape ahead of consequential 2024 announcement. President Bojan returns this week to St. Croix, one of his and First Lady Joe Biden's beloved vacation spots, seeking a final opportunity to rest before it is expected to be a contentious 2023 and re-election run. Now, that sounds like the White House wrote that as opposed to CNN writing that. Now, I want to I call your attention to that, not because they shouldn't or should have written it, but this is what they wrote today. President Joe Biden this week returns to St. Croix, one of his and First Lady Joe Biden's beloved vacation spots, seeking a final opportunity to rest before a tough year. Contentious 2023 and re-election run. CNN on the day that Ted Cruz went. Now remember, we're on the E, we're on the the passing of an historic storm winter bomb cold temperatures, uh, flights shut down. I mean, epic stuff across the country right now and a southern border that is, is just so porous that we have 5 million people that have come across. So he goes on his vacation, CNN. They're going on their beloved vacation spot. So after a similar thing took place in Texas, here is, here is what CNN wrote. Senator Ted Cruz and his family flew to Cancun, Mexico, as a winter disaster in his home state of Texas left millions without power or water, according to photos posted on social media and confirmed to CNN by a person familiar with the travel itinerary. So when Ted Cruz goes, it's bad after something bad happening in his state. When four or five issues bad happen in our country, the president's going on a, on, on, on a vacation. For rest and relaxation with the First Lady. not a, This is CNN, same news agency. If you're wondering how you can see, and that's an absolute, those are, those are identical stories. Cruz goes across the border after a, 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 a winter storm hits Texas. Biden goes on a vacation out of the country after winter storms ravage multiple states. All the way down to North Carolina and beyond. But 
do you see the difference in news coverage? It's it's a bias, and I it it bear, and look everyone in this audience knows it. You see CNN, you know it's it's unfortunate. It's the same CNN that took directions from the FBI about the Hunter Biden, and they still don't want to cover the Hunter Biden story. They still, to this day, even though they know it's 100% true, they don't want to cover it. They don't want to admit they have a compromised president in the White House. And that's, I'm not doing that as a pro-Trumper. I'm doing that because it's true. We have a White House that is on autopilot with Ron Klein running it. We have a president that can't deftly discuss the issues of the day that doesn't understand his own policies because he's being directed. And again, I'm not that's not a conspiracy theory. It's evident it's evident every time he holds a press conference. It's evident in the number of press conferences he does not hold. The fact that he's doing a press conference with Drew Barrymore tells you a lot. And that's no that's no slight to Drew Barrymore. It's a slight to the administration that doesn't trust this president in front of folks, not on a regular basis. But they're in St. Croix. And I think he spent about as much uh a much t- as much time off as any president we've ever had. Um, if you look at NBC News, here's uh, an NBC News version of it. President Biden is in St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands to enjoy some downtime and warmer weather and to ring in the New Year with his family. The NBC version of that story, the NBC version of Ted Cruz, said Ted Cruz of Texas traveled to Mexico for a family vacation as his home state struggles with a winter weather crisis that left many struggling without power. So there's NBC's version of the story. What about CBS's version of the story? Here's CBS's version of the story. President Biden traveled to a place very familiar to him, the U.S. Virgin Islands, to enjoy some downtime and warmer weather to ring in a new year with family. CBS, Senator Ted Cruz wants to went to Cancun as Texas faces winter storm crisis. The, it's just, they are what they are. Take a break. Get ready to kick off hour number three with much more to go. Chad, I'm your guest host for Pete Callender. Stay tuned. 